All right, a little lighter today. We scared him off with the eternal generation of the sun last week. Well, we're looking at Christology. And so before we dive back in, I do want to go back, by the way, and, and clarify. I probably left you a little confused on eternally begotten. I'm not sure I'll clarify it much, but I've at least got some professional definitions for you. So it's not just my word that you have to hear, but others, when it comes to difficult doctrines, it's good to look at different sources. So let me open in prayer. Lord, thank you for the doctrine of Christ taught in Scripture. We know not only of his work, but also his deity, who he is. We want to know Christ as the person, the, the Son, your eternal Son. And we pray, Father, that we would know him, know him all the more. As Paul prays for the Ephesians, that they would know Christ. He's the one we're going to spend eternity with. And so help us, Lord, to know our Lord and Savior, who he is, his person, his nature, his essence, and his work. I pray that you would Help us with that this morning. Amen. So here's the Nicene Creed. And we just, just to go back a bit, we were talking about eternal generation of the Son. And in the Bible, this is the begotten Son, the only begotten. Some translations I told you have moved away from that. They're just using only. They were backing that up from word studies. But now more word studies have come out, and it turns out only begotten is a, is a more accurate translation. We shouldn't be getting rid of words in the Bible because we don't understand them. We should leave them there and try to understand them is the way it works. And I'm not saying all these translations were trying to get away from a doctrine, but this is a difficult one to understand. And many theologians and scholars have just said, well, we can't understand it. Why teach it? And they, they often will even footnote it. So I got out some books last night to try to help on this and found some definitions. First of all, let's just look at this diagrammatically. Diagrams are, are not real, just to let y'all know. This is not actually God. This is not actually the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you try to draw these things out, you have to be careful not to show bad analogies and heretical representations. But this is generally what the Nicene Creed has taught in its creed and its doctrine, laid out in a, in a diagram. So, and more accurately, the whole triangle is God, but they're trying to separate this so you can think separately. So you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on the corners, and they're, they all link to the center. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And then you have the knots. So the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Son, the Son is not the Father. Okay, so just a basic representation. When we talk about the eternal generation of the Son, you can put some arrows on this. And... From the Father, the Son is begotten, but not physically begotten, like in human beings, not even a, a spiritual birthing in a sense, but in some way, the Father eternally begets the Son. This is where I said it's difficult to understand. A little easier, I think, is that the, the, the Holy Spirit, and we'll come to this, proceeds both from the Father and the Son. So when we get to pneumatology, I'll mention that the, the Western church said this was the case. The, the Father sends the Spirit, the Son sends the Spirit. There's a lot of verses on that. The Eastern Orthodox Church said, no, how dare you add that the Son sends the Spirit. And they got upset. They said that officially that was their reason for splitting, but there's more to it than that when it comes to East-West, Eastern Orthodox and Western Catholic. However, this is generally the way to represent that idea of the Father begets the Son and the Father and Son send the Spirit. So what does it mean that the Father begets the Son? Here's our textbook. The eternal 
necessary and self-differentiating act of God, God the Father, by which he generates the personal substance of the Son and thereby communicates to the Son the entire divine essence. So does that help you all out any there? Is that, is that any more clear? Especially with my typo there. See how fast I'm, I'm typing there. Okay, so, well, it's nice to have a definition and it gives us some words to work with. But like so much in theology, we we're just talking about what it's not. This is eternal, so it's not in time. It's not dealing just with the, the body, that, that, the humanity of Christ, because that hasn't even occurred yet. We're talking about the pre-incarnate Son here. And uh, this is ongoing. So even when Christ takes on a human body, this still is a deity. The deity of the Son is eternally begetting. It's necessary. That means it's required. It helps us to differentiate Father and Son. That's probably the most important thing about this doctrine, is it, it, it does help us to differentiate Father and Son. It, it tells us that it is a Father-Son relationship. But beyond that, how do you understand generating the personal substance of the Son eternally? So Louis Burkhoff gives us a bit more information. He says that it is eternal and necessary act of the first person in the Trinity, whereby he, within divine being, is the ground of a second personal subsistence like his own and puts his second person in possession of the whole divine essence without any division, alienation, or change. Does that clarify it? I mean, you get the idea, right? The Son is God. The Father is God. There's no division in their essence and their substance, right? There's no alienation. That's separation. There's no change. But with the ground of the second personal subsistence like his own, really difficult for us. You got it, Shane? So here's, I, I got a lot of textbooks that I have at home, and, and some of them didn't even touch on this. Some of them footnoted it and referred back, and eventually you get back to Robert Lethem. And so many systematic theology books don't have glossaries, so I like it when they do have a glossary, before we can get definitions from that. And this guy put it in his definition. So this is kind of the reform book on the Trinity recently. The unique property of the Son in relation to the Father. Since God is eternal, the relation between the Father and Son is eternal. This is not to be understood on the basis of human generation or begetting, since God is spiritual. Here's a summary. It is beyond our capacity to understand. So we can say what it's not, right? It's, it's not having a child in the sense that we think of it. It's not like the, the son descended from the father, generationally speaking. But there is a relationship between father and son. They're both God, of course, but separate persons of the Trinity. And the term begetting is used in Scripture. It's difficult to understand. And from that, you, you can go and read. You know, I picked up, the, there's a book on working through this doctrine in church history. And I'm flipping the pages. I haven't read the whole book, so I'm flipping the pages trying to get a definition. And he doesn't really give you a definition. It's called The Eternal Generation of the Son. And I have to go to these other books to, to try to find that. But it's important that we do at least maintain it and continue to, to believe it. And I believe, leave it in Scripture like the King James translated it, or even English Bibles before that the eternal begotten, or the only begotten Son. All right, so we ended last week talking about the Old Testament appearances of Christ. If, if God appears in the Old Testament, that's called the theophany. And then when the pre-incarnate Christ appears, that's a Christophany. And I think if you, if you put all the Scripture together, you see that any appearance of God to man is really a Christophany. Because John says, no one has seen God. You know, Jesus indicates that. No one has seen God at any time. How can that be when God shows up over and over in the Old Testament? Well, there were some hints 
in the New Testament of what's going on there. And so let's just start through this. We'll look at the angel of Yahweh first today. And that's a fun study. If you've been in our Bible studies on Wednesday night, you've seen this come up a lot already. Who is the angel of Yahweh? Is that the pre-incarnate Christ? And then there are some other ones thrown in that aren't called the angel of Yahweh, but it's pretty clear that it's the pre-incarnate Christ. Pretty clear. So, by the way, there, there is some debate, not just with liberal scholars, but even conservative Bible scholars and theologians. Does Christ show up in the Old Testament? Some will say, yeah, he's there in every verse. You know, the jewels on the, on the priest's robe, you know, that, that signifies Christ. It's not true, but that's what they'll say. But other, you know, maybe the same person might turn around and say, but these appearances of the angel of Yahweh are not Christ. Or the liberal Christian theologian will say, well, you know, these are all God the Father showing up in the Old Testament. Who cares what the New Testament says? So it's all over the map. But I think the Bible's a lot clearer on this than people sometimes want to want to say. So let's look at the angel of Yahweh. This comes from my notes on angelology, which you'll be blessed to, to see again in about a year. But there we also talk about more than just the angel of Yahweh. We look at Satan, the demons, holy angels. Does everybody have a, a guardian angel? Are there angels over the churches, etc.? Uh, but I just pulled these slides out because we've already got them laid out. Who is the angel of Yahweh? And if you have the NASB or other translations, it's Lord in all caps in the Old Testament. So who's the angel of the Lord? The LSB translates Lord according to its original, Yahweh. And uh, who is the angel of Yahweh? So there's four different choices typically that come up. Uh, just an angel from heaven. So this is just a messenger that God sent. He's an angel sent from Yahweh. And when it comes to the, the word of in English, it can mean a lot of things, right? And even in Greek and, and Hebrew, the, the genitive case can mean a lot of different things. And so is this the angel sent from Yahweh? Is this some mysterious figure in the Old Testament called Melchizedek, the king of Salem? And is this Yahweh himself? Or is this a Christophany? I think it's a Christophany, which essentially is also the same as number three, right? Yahweh himself. But the reason I go with Christophany instead of number three is because the angel of Yahweh is called God, but he's also speaking to Yahweh. So to be more clear than just saying Yahweh himself, I think it's, it's better to say this is the pre-incarnate Christ. So let's look at some verses. Genesis 16, 7, and 13. So now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. This is Hagar. And by the spring on the way to Shur. So it's the angel of the Lord. That's important. In, in Hebrew, the articles are there. The angel, the Lord. Especially the in front of angel. There's other times where an angel of the Lord shows up. And that one's usually not pre-incarnate Christ. But this is the angel of the Lord. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are God who sees. This is NASB, by the way, old notes. You are God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? So this angel of Yahweh, she sees him. The Bible says, the, the writer Moses of Genesis says, it's the angel of Yahweh. And then she calls this angel of Yahweh God. Okay, maybe she's wrong. Well, she also asked this question that so many people in the Old Testament ask when they see the angel of Yahweh. Have I even remained alive? here after seeing him. How can it be that I've survived seeing God? Nobody survives seeing God. 
you see God when you're dead. So if you see God, you're either dead or about to be dead. And so when people are allowed to live after this, they're shocked, they're surprised. Clear in her mind that she has seen God, even though the text says it's the angel of Yahweh. Now the Lord appeared to her by the oaks of Mamre. Let's, let's go to the text on this since I don't have the LSB here. Let's go to the true translation. That was a joke. Okay, so the angel of Yahweh, right? Well, we're not even there yet. Then Yahweh appeared to him. So Yahweh's there. But then he says, it says three men. Then he calls him Adonai Lord, which could be, you know, an angel could be addressed that way. But it sounds like he's talking to Yahweh in verse 3, doesn't it? My, my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. So three angels show up. One's the angel of Yahweh. Yahweh appeared to him, it says. Two angels go into Sodom and Gomorrah to bring about the destruction. One stays, and it says Yahweh departed when that angel left. So the angel of Yahweh there, a pre-incarnate Christophany here. Genesis twenty-two eleven. So this comes up a lot in Genesis, also Exodus and Judges. Somebody should do a study on why there's clumped together these angel of Yahweh passages in certain books. Genesis twenty-two eleven. The angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the boy. So this is when Isaac is called to sacrifice. I mean, Abraham's called to sacrifice Isaac. And God says, do not do this. Do not stretch out your hand against the boy. Do nothing for him. So it's the angel of Yahweh calling out to him. Now look at 15. Then the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven. Not on the earth, but from heaven, where God calls out. By myself I have sworn and declares Yahweh, because you have done this thing, and I have not spared your son, your only one. And he goes on, I will bless you. So it's the angel of Yahweh speaking, but he says, by myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh. So is it Yahweh or the angel of Yahweh? We have to say both. This one, this one got me when I first saw it. I, I couldn't believe it. Everybody knows about the burning bush. But have we read it closely? Exodus 3. If you have your LSB, you'll want to look at it there. But you can, you can back translate it to Yahweh here on some of these. Although when you copy paste into a slide presentation, the all caps Lord sometimes doesn't stick. So that's why I'm looking it up here. Exodus 3, 2. The burning bush, the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire. Yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why is the bush not burned up? And Yahweh saw that he turned aside to look. Now is this Yahweh from heaven or Yahweh from the bush? Let's look. Yahweh saw that he turned aside to look. So God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So the angel of Yahweh is God. The, Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh appeared to him. In the burning bush, he's not seeing an angel and then hearing God separately. It's, it's the same here. The angel of Yahweh is Yahweh, the pre-incarnate Christ. Judges. So quite a few of these in Judges. We'll just look at this one on the slide here. Judges 2.1. Now the angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I've sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So why is the angel of Yahweh speaking in the first person singular? I, I did this. 
I'm the one who brought you up. You haven't done what I told you to do. Go conquer the rest of these Philistines and Canaanites. I brought you out. I have sworn to your fathers. I will never break my covenant with you. Well, that's, that's God. God's the one who said that to Israel. And so the angel of Yahweh, or the angel of the Lord, the angel, again, get the article in there, the angel of the Lord is God, and particularly the, the second person of the Trinity. Now, you're, gonna see that, you're not going to see that in the Old Testament because the Trinity is not clearly laid out, doctrinally speaking. It's hinted at. There are things that you can go back now and, and kind of put together and, and see what's being hinted at. But there, that would be weird for them to say in Judges 2, the writer to say, this is the second person of the Trinity, by the way. Wouldn't make sense. It makes sense now as we look back because the angel of the Lord is Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh is Yahweh, specifically Christ. And even Jesus uses this a bit, doesn't he, with the, not exactly the angel of Yahweh argument, but he says, you know, my, David says to my Lord, right? And he, he goes through that whole thing of how can my Lord speak to God and so on. And so he uses that argument to try to trip up the Pharisees. Look at Judges 6.11. We just covered this a few weeks ago on Wednesday nights. Then the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah. Not Oprah, but Ophrah, Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of Yahweh appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you. That might say Yahweh is with you, right? I think it says in the original, Yahweh is with you. O valiant warrior. Yahweh looked at him and said, Go. In this, your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? So it's the angel of Yahweh who shows up. Right? He likes to sit under oak trees. It's a good thing we have all these oak trees in Texas, right? Those are different kinds of oak trees over there. But still, they do say Texas is God's country, right? Well, the angel of Yahweh shows up. But who speaks? God. Not through the angel, but the indication is the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. We would, we would say now, from the New Testament vantage point, the pre-incarnate Christ. Let's look at some more of these. They come up in Judges quite a bit here. So uh, chapter 13, which is coming up real soon in Bible studies. So if you're not coming on Wednesday night, you've got to come and hear this in context. The book of Judges. Let's look at Judges 13. I'm going to do a, a quick run through because I don't want to teach over what's going to be taught in the Bible study coming up. But this is the birth of Samson. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had borne no children. So this is the parents of Samson, who will be Samson. Then the angel of Yahweh appeared to the woman, said to her, Behold now, you are barren and have borne no children. We shall be with child to give birth to a son. So she's barren. When you have a barren woman in Scripture, you know, look at what God's about to do. So the angel of Yahweh shows up, gives her this wonderful pronouncement. She's going to have a son. Skip down to verse 6. Then the woman came out and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. So, first of all, it's the angel of Yahweh. The, the narrator, the, the writer here tells us it's the angel of Yahweh. She doesn't quite understand that. She just says it's, it looks like a man, but he also looked like this angel sent by God, Elohim, God, a general name there, not the angel of Yahweh necessarily, but she knows something's going on. Now skip down to verse 8. 
Then Manoah, her husband, entreated Yahweh and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again, that he may instruct us what to do for the boy who is to be born. So Manoah believes this is going to happen, but he's not sure who came and visited his wife. So he says, Lord, please send back this man of God. Now, usually a man of God in the Old Testament would be a prophet. Man of God in New Testament or in the church terms would be a preacher or a pastor. And so who is this man of God? Verse 9, God listened to the voice of Manoah. The angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So here the author is connecting the angel of Yahweh with the angel of God here. So the, the angel that she spoke of is also the angel of Yahweh. So the woman ran quickly, told her husband. She said to him, Behold, the man who came the other day to me has appeared to me. So this man's back. You want to, you want to meet the man of God, husband? He came back. Verse 15, the Manoah said to the angel of Yahweh, Please let us delay you so that you may prepare, we may prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of Yahweh said to Manoah, Though you delay me, I will not eat your food, but if you prepare the burnt offering, then offer it to Yahweh. So the angel of Yahweh says, Offer it up to Yahweh. Okay? And then uh, Manoah says in verse 17, What is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. The angel of Yahweh said to him, Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Probably there, that's the name. Wonderful is a title, a name for God. You could just say the, the name is described with the adjective wonderful, but I think he's saying something about his name. It, it is wonderful. That's my name, wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat. He offers it up. Verse 21, Now the angel of Yahweh did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of Yahweh. Look what he says in verse 22. He says to his wife, We will surely die for we have seen God. So up until this point, he thinks, you know, this is just a man sent from God, maybe it's an angel. Then he realizes when the offering burns up and the angel of Yahweh disappears, this is God himself. We should die. We will surely die. His wife, being more encouraging than he is, says, if Yahweh had desired to put us to death, he would have not, not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. So verse 25, the spirit of Yahweh began to stir Samson, and it goes on with this story. So the angel of Yahweh shows up. They realize at the end of the story, wow, this is God. This is God. They, they realized, and so did Gideon, and so did Abraham, what many scholars can't see, quite see today, that the angel of Yahweh is God. And the pre-incarnate Christ, because no one has seen God, God the Father, at any time. Let's look at some other fun ones here. Daniel 3.25. This one's pretty easy. Probably these, these are more under the other appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. I wouldn't say, I don't think this specifically says the angel of Yahweh, but these are other appearances that we must consider and look at because we love this story, right? The, the three men in the fire, but there's a fourth man in the fire. So Nebuchadnezzar throws the three men in the fire to punish them. And uh, here's, what he, here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. He answered and said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of God, son of the gods. So right before that, he says, Was there not three that I threw in there? They said, Certainly, O king. Now there's four. And one's got this appearance, which is glory, shining, brightness, brighter than the fire is what he's seeing. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. What does that mean? 
Well, that means that within his pagan belief system at this time, I think he's converted later, but within his belief system, he knows that the gods, right? You can either say God or, or one of the angels or maybe even the demons who make themselves appear as an angel of light. Satan does that. He knows that when someone shines like that, that's deity. So in his thinking, it's like one of the gods, one of the son of the gods come down. And then look at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel. So there, there's the connection to angel. It's not specifically the angel of Yahweh, but it is his angel. And saved his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's word and gave up their bodies so as not to serve and not to worship any god except their own god. So the, who's, this, who's this fourth one in there? Well, he, he gets pretty close for a pagan, right? He, he goes so far as to say a son. A son. And then chapter 4, I think, describes Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. He goes and is humbled by the Lord and then exalts and honors the king of heaven at the end of chapter 4. But I'll save that for my sermon series on Daniel. All right, going forward in your Bible to Zechariah. All right, so is Zechariah before or after Nahum? After. Why is that? How do you remember that? Yeah, it's the next to last. And the last one's Malachi, right? So if you know the last one's Malachi, which, you know, in the beginning when I was studying the Bible... Hosea starts the Minor Prophets, Malachi ends it, and all the rest are somewhere in between, right? And now you just keep working both ends here, and you've got Zechariah as the second to last. Zechariah is a great book. It talks a lot about the coming return of Christ. Let's look at 112. The angel of Yahweh answered and said, O Yahweh of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, which you have been indignant these 70 years? So the angel of Yahweh is speaking to Yahweh. And calling out to Yahweh, Trinity, right there in Zechariah 1.12. Now, like, like us, so many times we just go right past verses and we don't stop and think about it. And we go back to it years later. We hear a sermon, we read a book, and we're like, wow, I didn't see all of that. That's what even believing Jews in the Old Testament days, it's not that they would have stopped here and reasoned in their mind, but it is here, right? It is here. The angel of Yahweh, who's clearly many times before this, because almost all the Old Testament is before this, has been shown to be God himself speaking. Here he speaks to Yahweh, like the Son of God speaking to Father God on the cross or in prayer and so on. So we have, I mentioned here, a hint here of the Trinity, not laid out completely, but at least pointed, pointed to. Any questions about the angel of Yahweh? Have I convinced anybody that didn't previously know about this? Nobody? Wow. I got to get better. At, I got to get better at teaching. Y'all already all knew this, right? The angel of Yahweh. I mean, I brought it up in Bible study. We brought it up in classes before and so on. But to me, this was pretty, pretty amazing. When, I, when you see something for the first time in the Bible, it's exciting, right? It's a big thing in the Old Testament, the angel of Yahweh. And I'd never seen that. And one day, I don't know where I heard it, but I was shown this and it just, wow. There it is right in front of us over and over. Other appearances. You remember the man Jacob wrestled with in Genesis? So let's go back to Genesis 32. Just touch on a few verses here. No one has seen God at any time, the New Testament says. So who is this man that wrestles with Jacob? Starting in 24. Then Jacob was left alone. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of dawn. 
And he saw that he had not prevailed against him. So he touched the socket of his thigh. And so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And he said, let, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he, this is the man said, I will not let you go unless you, oh, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So the, the man said, let me go. Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so the man says to him, what is your name? And Jacob says, Jacob. And then he said, you shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face. Yet my life has been delivered. Because you see God, you're, you're dead. You're going to die. But not if God comes and speaks to his people and shows his grace. And, but, he, but Jacob does recognize, look, I should have died here. So he says he's seen God. And so I think I would agree with many people that this is a theophany, a Christophany, because no one has seen the Father. So this must be Christ. Also, the, the God of Israel, whom the elders of Israel saw, Exodus 24, 9 to 11. And even Moses, right? When, when God passes by and Moses catches a glimpse of his glory in the cleft of a rock and his face shines, that has to be a Christophany as well. Exodus 24, 9 to 11. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet, there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. So this is the beginning of what we see over and over. We see it in Ezekiel 1. We see it in Revelation, this appearance of God's throne. And there's a, the pavement of sapphire, of blue, crystal-like sapphire underneath it. And it's as clear as the sky itself. So you can see through it. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. Because they've seen God. You would expect they're going to die. They would expect they're going to die. And the writer of Moses is telling us that did not happen. They beheld God. And they ate and they drank. So they saw God. But no one has seen the Father. This must be the Son. And it's a, a description that we see again in Ezekiel and, and Revelation. Also, we looked in Bible studies, but let's go back to it. Joshua 5. This is one I either had not known before or forgotten about. And then we get to, to Joshua in the Bible study. And I was reminded, oh, this is the, the pre-incarnate Christ too. Joshua 5.13. Not the angel of Yahweh here, but very similar. So Joshua is about to take Jericho. And huge walls, a bunch of, you know, we would call them cedar choppers or sand lappers or something like that. You know what that is, Carl? Cedar choppers? You know, they're, they're not worth much. They're not like battle-trained men. They're going up against Jericho. And they've come out of the wilderness. These young generation of Israelites don't really know how to fight. And so you can imagine there's worry. And then it happened that when Joshua was by Jericho. So he's, he's camped out near there. They're about to attack. They're waiting. He, Joshua is probably thinking about this. He lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? So Joshua recognizes something's different about this. Not one of our Israelites here. Who is this guy? Is he an angel? What's going on here? And here's what the, the man says. No, rather I indeed come now as commander of the host of Yahweh. The host is all the angels, the angel army of Yahweh. And this commander oversees that army. 
How many times do we see in the New Testament Jesus talking about coming back with his holy angels to deal out retribution and wrath? You see that in the book of Revelation. You hear Jesus talk about it in the Gospels. even comes up a time or two in the epistles. Christ is the commander of the armies of Yahweh. So this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Joshua fell on his face. As soon as he heard that, he realized that this is God. This is Yahweh. He fell on his face to the earth. He bowed down and asked, what has my Lord to say to his slave? That's quite a bit different than, are you for us or for our enemies? Oh, I'm the commander of the host of Yahweh. Boom, he falls down and he says, I'm your slave. I'm your slave. Tell, tell us what to do. The commander of the host of Yahweh said to Joshua, he doesn't say, do these battle plans, right? Do this, do the thing with the horns where the wall is going to fall down, march around it. No, this is what he says. He says, remove your sandals from your feet for the place you are standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. So holy ground is what happened with the burning bush, right? Moses has to remove his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. Not because the Catholic priest has blessed the ground and thrown holy water on it and silly stuff like that. No, it's because God is there. Wherever God is, that's holy. It's God's special presence. Heaven, God's special presence, that's holy. When, when the Lord is standing in his glory right there, not his full glory, of course, Joshua couldn't have beheld that, but in a sense, he's standing right there on the ground. And to show that you are the slave of Yahweh, you need to remove your sandals from your feet. And Joshua would have recognized this is what happened with Moses at the burning bush. Joshua is the replacement of Moses. Now that Moses has passed, he's leading in many ways. He's not a prophet like Moses, but he's a leader of Israel. So another Old Testament appearance of Christ. Okay, we looked at Ezekiel, but I, just, I mentioned it briefly. But let's look at it. I love this description. Think about a rainbow. How beautiful is a rainbow? And we have here in Ezekiel 1, this image of God's throne. And he compares it to a rainbow. Ezekiel 1, 126. The glory of God here is leaving Israel. And it's signifying that God has left them in their destruction that's coming upon the city of Jerusalem. Not permanently, right? See, last week's sermon in Romans and today, but there's a time when the glory of God is going to leave them and he's going to come back to this city in the end times when Christ returns. You see that at the end of Ezekiel, but look at 126. Now above the expanse, so he sees this wonderful expanse. There's these living creatures, they have wings. They, they have the sound of many waters or a waterfall. That's, that's representative of God's voice. It's like a very strong waterfall, has that kind of force to it. Now, above this expanse that he saw was over their heads. There was something in the likeness of a throne, like sapphire stone in appearance. Where do we see that? Exodus 24, sapphire. And there, from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something with the appearance of fire. And there was a radiance all around him. So there's a sapphire. There's a shining brightness coming from his lower body. And it's like fire. It's so bright, like a hot burning red fire. And then you have this radiance. And look at how he describes the radiance in verse 28. As the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the radiance all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. And I saw his, I saw this and I fell on my face and heard a sound of a voice speaking. So have you ever seen a really bright rainbow in the middle of the day, a big one? And then there's like, there's just shimmering coming off of the, the colors. It's like little gold specks almost of, of light. 
just, just a small snapshot of what seeing the throne room of God is like, the glory of God. And so again, a pre-incarnate Christ here. No one has seen God at any time. Isaiah 6 also, he sees Yahweh, Yahweh of hosts. And he has this vision of Yahweh of hosts in the temple. And the train of his, his robe fills the temple. And that's the holy, 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 right? And, the, and the, the seraphim are flying all around. Well, that one we don't even have to make an argument for. John in John 12, 37 says, this is Christ. Let's go to John 12. Instead of looking at Isaiah, which you probably heard that verse. If you haven't, just pick up R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. You'll know quite a bit about Isaiah 6 after that. Not just by picking it up, but reading it, of course. You've got to read what you buy. My wife always tells me, why are you buying so many books? You've got to read those books. I say, you don't understand. Being a pastor means we've got to have resources on the shelf. You never quite know when I might want to pull one off to get a definition like the eternal generation of the sun. She says, well, what about all these other ones that aren't theological reference and, and commentaries? So those are for vacation, right? I'll never read all those books on vacation. Okay, John 12, 37. But though he had done so many signs before them, they were still not believing him, so that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. This is coming up in today's sermon. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. They couldn't believe. They weren't, they weren't able to believe. God had hardened their hearts. He had prevented it. For Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in return, and I heal them. Now look at verse 41. He just throws this in right after this condemnation of those who would not believe in Jesus. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. So he saw his glory and he spoke about him. Well, who's the he and the him? Well, who's under discussion here, right? These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself. And the rest of this is all about Jesus. They would not believe in him. Lord, who has believed our report? Where's that from? 52.1. So, 53.1. So, Isaiah spoke of the Lord not being believed. And then John just throws this in. The, Isaiah knows about this. Because way back earlier in the book, when he was called, when he was sent by Yahweh, he saw him. He saw Jesus. He saw Christ. And he spoke about him when he said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So that, that one, that is a clear Christophany in my mind. Otherwise, you've got to make the case in John 12, 41, that he's talking about God in general. And it doesn't really help the argument John's making here about Christ. If he just says, you know, someone saw the Father. Isaiah saw the Father. That's not really helping his argument. His argument is they're not going to believe in the Messiah when he comes because he is the Lord. And that's all in God's providence and God's sovereignty. That's part of reprobation. They want to continue in their sin and God has covered their eyes so they would not believe. All right, we already looked at Daniel 3, 25 and 28. Let's talk just in general in the last few minutes here. And next week, we'll actually get to the incarnation, Lord willing. We're still talking about pre-incarnate. Incarnate is when he took on flesh, right? The, the New Testament starts with the incarnation. We're still in the Old Testament here, but there's a lot about Christ in the Old Testament, a lot. The prophets spoke of Christ. The New Testament makes this clear. John 5, 31. So what's in the scriptures? The scriptures at that time are the Old Testament. When Jesus is talking right here, 
There are no other scriptures but the Old Testament. And so he's saying, you, you look at the Old Testament and you, you think that you're going to find eternal life, but you're missing the point. They're pointing to me. If you want eternal life, in other words, look at me, the Messiah. Luke 24, 27. Jesus is in all the scriptures as a whole. Moses and the prophets is a way to summarize the whole Old Testament. He'll, he'll say it, the prophets, the law, the prophets, and the writings in other places. And so he says, I'm there. Why didn't you see this coming? Why didn't you see, well, surprisingly, why didn't you see the resurrection coming? You got to look hard to find references to the resurrection. They are in the Old Testament. I, I preached on that because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, according to the scriptures, he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. Where is that? Well, there's the analogy in Jonah. And, and then there's some, some references, I believe, I think it's Hosea, where the idea of him being raised up again. So Jesus Christ is prophesied about in the Old Testament. Luke 24, 44. Three parts of the Old Testament, according to the Jews. The law, first five books of Moses. The prophets, which is not just the, the ones we're used to from Isaiah onward, but also First and Second Samuel, Judges, Joshua, so on. And then the Psalms, which is another way of saying the writings. That's everything else in the Old Testament. Right? Job's, Ecclesiastes, Psalms. The Jews even put Ruth and Esther in the writings. They put Daniel in the writings. And so it was a pretty large set there. And he says, I'm in every part of those three parts. Interestingly, today in, in the sermon, I'm going to let you know that Paul quotes from each of those three parts to make an argument about the hardening of Israel. So it's a way that the Jews would say, it doesn't matter where you look. Right? Let's say you're a Sadducee. They only believed in the first five books. That this truth is there. And the Pharisees believed and the other Jews believed in all the Old Testament. It's Every section you look at. You can't just say it's in Moses. It's in all of these, Jesus says. He was, God was putting in the prophets throughout the Old Testament, starting with Moses forward, that Christ is coming. The Messiah is coming. So here's, this was in your book. There's a long one that goes on for pages and pages about all the Old Testament prophecies. This is just in the Psalms. I'll pull this from the MacArthur Study Bible. So if you have this, it's in your MacArthur Study Bible around Luke 24, 44. Look at how many times just in the Psalms the Messiah is mentioned. Psalm 2, which is, is there's a section in your book if you're reading along, which I encourage it. Psalm 2, they go through, that's talking about the Son, right? Kiss the Son. Do, do homage to the Son, some translations say. Bow down to Him. Submit to Him, nations of the earth. It's an evangelistic psalm about the Son of God. So there it's speaking of incarnation, His crucifixion even hints of his resurrection. All these are quoted in the New Testament except Psalm 72. Today, in the sermon, Paul quotes from Psalm 69. 69 is a messianic psalm. It's also an imprecatory psalm by David, talking about how he was betrayed. And, and it gets picked up in the New Testament saying that this is a messianic psalm, also pointing to Christ, and that he would be betrayed by his friends and he would be crucified. And then Paul uses it today to speak of the hardening of Israel. The hardening of Israel and how they'll be punished for that. So, so many times this comes up. You know, I heard recently about the Psalms. The Psalms are kind of like the, not only the middle of your Bible, right? If you open to the middle, you're usually around the section of the Psalms. There's a reason that it's put in with the New Testament on a lot of little Bibles, right? Not just because we like it and it does speak to us. And it's the, the hymn book of the, the Jews, 
And we need to sing more psalms ourselves. We're working on that. Used to, I thought, you know, these Presbyterians that only sang psalms, they just like literally got their Bibles out and they sang. And then I realized, no, they, they actually change the wording and try to make it rhyme and do a little bit of work to it. It's not just pure reading and singing it like the Jews would have done in Hebrew. Anyway, I say that because there's, a, there's a one, I think next week we're going to sing, The King of Love My Shepherd Is. Anybody know that one? Psalm 23, you know that one? It's really awesome. We're going to do it, I think, next week. Lord willing. So I've been thinking about the Psalms a lot lately, and when someday I can fit that into my preaching schedule. And uh, since it takes everybody six to eight years, we're going to have to add Sunday night services just for that. But how many times does Christ come up? So it's pointing forward because there's these Messianic Psalms. And then it goes back in the Psalms often, and it grabs the history from the Exodus forward, and even talks about the promises to Abraham. So I think it was Steve Lawson recently I heard, he said, it's the book in the middle of the Bible that grabs everything going back and brings it up to date, and then points forward to everything that's going to happen in the future. And I thought, that's good. I mean, really in one big book, the Psalms, you have kind of the whole theology of the Bible. Okay, so we need to just finish off with this idea. And the book, I'll just read what the book has. I broke it out in the bullet points and then I want to talk about it. It's necessary to inject at this point in their discussion of the Old Testament prophecies, the recognition of a dangerous trend to read the Lord Jesus Christ into every Old Testament text. This practice, this practice ignores the true prophecies, rejects the essential hermeneutic of authorial intent, kills the authentic exegesis and exposition, and makes meaningless the Old Testament to its original Jewish readers. Such is not a spiritual approach, but rather an attack on the divine meaning of the Old Testament. So this is getting that kind of a, a, it's been around a while, but it's becoming, I think, more popular. And especially with Reformed folk, is the idea that not is Jesus just in the Old Testament or each book or each section or, or many passages or doctrines point to the coming of Christ, but that we have to find him in every verse or we're somehow just acting like Jews. And I get their, their warning there. I mean, we shouldn't, like if, if I'm preaching Daniel someday, it shouldn't just stop with what Daniel says, right? We have the full revelation. So when I get done explaining the text of Daniel, if the New Testament picks up any of that, or it points forward at all, then of course we connect it to Christ. We're Christians. We're not Jews. We're not rabbis in the temple. But at the same time, there's those that go so far as they, they have to find Christ in every text. I think it's so they can preach the text. They want to preach the Old Testament. That's a good thing. But we can't turn the beads and, and jewels on the, the high priest garments into something about Jesus. Right? We, can't, we, we can't take the example of Ezekiel's temple, even though it's hard and difficult because there's sacrifices going on, and just say, a lot of whole things about Jesus. This many cubits here, and you take a turn, and it's this many cubits, and then this, the gates, this many cubits, and that's more than a, just like the temple in, in Revelation. The, the city of Jerusalem, sorry, the city of Jerusalem in Revelation is, is describing something, describing a city and the temple and Ezekiel and so on in the Old Testament. We can't just insert Christ in there because we don't understand it or it's hard. We just have to work at the text and we have to work those things out. The others talk about sacrifices. What does that mean? Is that the millennial kingdom and so on? Other passages, you know, Augustine was real big on this. He, he was kind of the first guy Origen really spiritualized a lot. He was earlier than Augustine, but Augustine became more popular than Origen, especially since Origen was declared a heretic. But Augustine would just take a text sometimes. Sometimes he did good with it, and sometimes he just twisted that thing, did whatever he wanted. 
We've got to be careful with that. Is the book of Judges pointing to Christ? Yes. There's no king in Israel, right? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What's the idea? Israel needs a king. Oh, for Samuel, a king comes along. It's Saul. It's the king chosen by the people. It's a bad king. We need a king after God's own heart. That's David. David points to Christ. We can get to Christ, right? Spurgeon is famous for saying, a saying that, that folks like to use who, who do this sometimes. But let's, let's remember what he said, right? He talked about every text being what? Like all, all the roads in England lead to London. Every text leads to Christ. What he meant by that is not that every text is about Christ, right? The, the famous one I used in, when I taught this summer on how to teach the Bible, right? They took out the king of Ai and they hanged him on a tree. And people say, well, there it is. You know, Christ was hung on a tree. Yeah, but this is the evil king who's being punished. That's not symbolizing Christ at all. It's symbolizing God's wrath against the, the Canaanites. We can't do that. Spurgeon said the roads lead to London. He didn't say every town in England is the same as London and just in disguise, right? He didn't say, I can't pronounce the towns in England. Lancashire, is that right? Lancashire. He didn't say, well, that's London in disguise. No, it, the road from there goes to London. If you get on a road and you go south, you're eventually going to end up in London because it's the capital and it's a major city. And what he meant is, as Christian preachers, we've got to get to Christ if we're preaching from the Old Testament, right? We cannot. Now, maybe in a Bible study, we don't always do that. But in a sermon, in a sermon, we've got to get to Christ. We've got to point to Christ, not by twisting the text, but by linking it up to the revelation that comes later. So we have to be careful not to twist the Old Testament out of its original meaning. When David wrote Psalm 69, David wrote it speaking of himself. Now, there are parts of it, though, that are clearly about him. It talks about his guilt, his sin, and so on. But there are parts that we see in the New Testament are clearly messianic. They're pointing to Christ. And we're really on safe ground there because they're quoted in the New Testament, and that's inspired word of God. So if you want to be safe on this, you know, just go with what the New Testament says. If it doesn't go back and, and grab some of these, then I don't think we should either. Typology, that's another discussion for another day. Okay, questions? Anybody got a better definition for the eternal generation of the sun? Anybody want to tell a funny story about how a text can be twisted out of... Out of I used to read Augustine. I did in a sermon one time where he goes through and he talks about the this, this jewel on the high priest's garment, is that represents Adam. And this jewel represents, because it's red, it's the blood of the sacrifice. And this jewel represents that. It was kind of funny, but I forgot where, where I put it, where I put that quote. Okay. All right. Next week, we are going to get into the incarnation. You're probably a little more familiar with the incarnation than some of the things we've talked about. It's what you hear about every Christmas. But there, we're going to talk about the deity of Christ, that is incarnation. The kenosis, which there's a lot of error around that. So I want to I want to be clear on that. We actually changed our doctrinal statement here. So did Master. So did Grace Community Church. Just to be more clear on this doctrine here, the kenosis. And we did that a few years ago after they did. Virgin birth. That's what we're looking at next week, if we can get all that in. So let me close in prayer today. Lord, thank you for these students who want to learn theology. We're always growing, even if we've heard these things before and seen the text. We have these reminders. We have these Reminders to see Christ where you have put him in the text. And he is the Lord of the Bible. So, of course, he is in the Bible and he's there. But help us to be good exegetes, to use good hermeneutics, and to link up the text to Jesus, but not twist it out of its context. 
We pray that you would give us a mind with wisdom to do the right kind of Bible reading and Bible study. We pray this for your glory. Amen.